I want to uh, thank Holly for filling in today. Uh, if she didn't say anything, I think she probably did. I was out there. Sean is over because Griffin is being installed today at uh, the church. So Sean is, is over with Griffin this morning. So Holly has kindly filled in. And Sean will be gone next week. So Jay, her husband, is going to fill in. So we, we welcome both of them to the pulpit. And I thank them very much for coming and being a part here today. I want to uh, take just a moment and say thank you to Miss Macy. You start a new path today. We go down a different thing. We change. You know, it's baptism is not necessary, but it's an outward, invisible sign of an inward and spiritual change. So I welcome you as a sister in Christ. I love you very, very much, and uh, it's been a good day. It's been a good day. I hope each and every day will get better as you go along. I welcome family and friends as well this day. We uh, continue with our Midsummer Monster series. We're getting toward the end. We've talked about all sorts of things. We talked about loneliness, talked about grief, talked about anger. And today we talk about something that, whether we like to admit it or not, affects us all, and that's the monster of addiction. Addiction. It affects us all because it touches our lives in so many different ways. And I want you to remember that as we go through this sermon this day. But I want to start out by going to Paul's letter to the church at Rome and what he writes. I've used uh, Romans a couple of times in this series. And today we go to the seventh chapter, starting with the seventh verse. As Paul is talking about the law and sin, and you have to follow carefully. Uh, Paul has a tendency to use words that bounce back and forth. But you have to listen to what he has to say because he is talking about the very monster that we talk about this day. Romans 7, starting with 7, we're going to go to the end of the chapter. If you'll follow me in your Bibles on the screen, this is what Paul writes. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it is to covet, Well, I I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, law, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Have you ever battled for control in your life? Some of us battle for control every day in our lives. And however, we we find that the main adversary in our lives are not our friends or our families or even our co-workers. It's the reflection that stares back to us from the mirror. What is the saying that goes? We have met the enemy and they is us. We are our own worst enemy. The French writer Victor Hugo, upon which the book that he wrote, Les Miserables, became a Broadway musical used to make sure that one of his servants stole his clothes every morning, thus preventing him from getting dressed, going out into the garden, and drinking and frittering away time. It forced him to stay in his room and continue to write. He was trying to gain control. Or the story of the little boy who scrapes a chair across the kitchen floor and climbs up onto the counter to reach into the cookie jar. And the mother in the other room hearing the noise, because all mothers have radar ears and can hear anything from miles away, calls out to the little boy, what are you doing in there? His hand tucked inside the cookie jar. And the little voice responds, I'm fighting temptation and I'm losing. (laughs) Trying to battle for control. It's been said that there are only two pains in life, two pains and two pains alone. The pain of discipline and the pain of regret. The pain of discipline weighs ounces, but the pain of regret weighs tons. It's that different. We battle for control each and every day of our lives, but somewhere along the line, we succumb to temptation and addiction that fill our lives. We want to do what is right, but so often we end up doing what we know is wrong. I think there are many of us today who could empathize with Paul as he writes these words to the church at Rome because they define our lives as well. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can there be a more relevant scripture for any of us that define our lives together as Christians? The battle for control to overcome temptation and addiction. Paul is admitting to you that he too has addictive tendencies. We don't know what they were, but we know that he had certain feelings 
And he felt powerless against those impulses. And that's why he writes this passage. Paul is basically telling us that there is a healthy side and a destructive side to our lives. To the Christian lives we lead, it's both sides of the fence. There is a side that we all want to be on, and that's to love one another and to love God with our heart, mind, and soul, our strength, and be good people. And then there's the other side, the destructive side. You've seen the little things with the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. And somehow we always keep going back to the devil. We do the things that we don't really want to do because we relish sin so much. We get drunk. We run up credit card bills. We sleep around. We beat the living car tar out of the guy we don't like. We get angry with somebody who annoys us. Just pick whatever your choice is. The monster of addiction in our lives is alive and well. And it's destructive. The destructive side of our lives often rules us. Let me talk to you about some facts about addiction. One in every eight Americans has a significant problem with drugs and alcohol. And 40% of that group has a dual diagnosis. Either they have trouble with both drugs and alcohol, or they have a mental disorder that goes along with the drugs and alcohol. Approximately 31 million Americans either use illicit drugs regularly or they are considered heavy drinkers. And of those, about 16 million, about half, need help immediately. They need treatment today, not yesterday or tomorrow, today. Listen to this one. By the age of 18, almost a quarter... 25% of all of our young people are illicit drug users. 25%. An untreated alcoholic's medical cost is approximately 400% higher than a non-alcoholic's medical cost. 400%. Approximately 75% of those who participate in illegal drugs, illicit drugs, or heavy drinking also are employed in the workplace. And they contribute significantly to workplace absenteeism, accidents and industry, industry injuries, decreased productivity, increased insurance expenses, employee turnover costs, and listen closely, on-the-job violence. On-the-job violence. The estimated annual direct cost of the American society Dealing with substance abuse is more, more than $350 billion. That's B. Billion with a B, not an M. 350. And it is generally accepted that chemical dependency, along with the associated mental health problems, is probably the number one severe health and social problem in our country today. Number one. Addiction, you know, takes many forms. We've been talking about drug and alcohol, so most of you saying, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have anything to do with drug and alcohol. But addiction takes on so many forms. It's just the tip of the iceberg. People get addicted to almost anything. Food, work, sex, gambling, shopping, working out, playing video games, watching sports, playing sports. You can get addicted to just about everything. Addiction is the hallmark of the 21st century because we live in excess and we love excess. We revel in it. We are addicted to work. We got laptops, cell phones, several emails, 
pagers, home offices, car offices, hotel offices, even plane offices. We love to work. We even got church offices. We are addicted to leisure. We got satellite dishes. We got remote controls. We got multi-million dollar stadiums. We got casino strips. We got off-the-track betting. We are addicted to adrenaline. We love extreme sports. We got cliff diving. We got skydiving. We got base jumping. We got shark feeding. I know that's what all you're going to do this afternoon. You're going to feed the sharks, right? We're addicted to voyeurism and violence. We got gangs. We got school murders. We got action and adventure movies. We got road rage. We've talked about that in here before. And we're addicted to fantasy. We got alcoholics. We got drug addicts. We got sex addicts. We got gambling addicts. We got nicotine addicts. All which prove it. We always want more. We're never settled with enough. There's always got to be just a little more. And as a result, what are we? We're overweight. We're out of shape. We're overworked. We're in debt. We're unhappy. We're dissatisfied. And we are totally stressed out. All of us in some way, shape, or form, or fashion are addicted to something. Hear me. All of us in some way, shape, form, or fashion are addicted to something. Some greater than others, but we're all addicted. So how does addiction get such a firm grip on all of us? And remember, this ranges from the entire spectrum. It ranges from drug and alcohol all the way to food and video games, out to this side over here, shopping, shoes, golf clubs. Ladies, how many of you enjoy buying shoes? Oh, here, I love this. Me, me. How many of you bought shoes for an outfit you don't even have yet, right? Huh? I can't talk, so I'm not going to go there. But it applies, it applies. In most cases, our addictions start off because it's a wonderful experience. We feel great about it, and we want to repeat the experience because it feels good on the inside. That experience becomes our escape. And slowly but surely, if we do it long enough, our personality changes, almost to the point that if somebody comes up and says, you got a problem, we need to talk about this, you go, oh, I don't have a problem. I'm fine. I'm under control. Just because i got 560 golf clubs in my closet doesn't mean I've got a problem. I know I can only use 14, but I'm going to use a different 14 every day of my life for the rest of my life. you got a problem. And finally, you find yourself needing that experience more and more and more because you've developed a growing tolerance. It takes more and more and more to hit that critical high that you feel so good about. That's the tipping point, because when your addiction gets to that point, you'll do most anything to have that experience. You'll cheat, you'll lie, you'll steal, because the experience and the feeling that it gives you is so important to your life. There is nothing more important than that addictive experience to your behavior. Now, most of us agree that addiction has a number of different contributing factors. A lot of us have hereditary addictions. We have addictions that come from our family. That's why it's often considered a disease, because it's part of the environment in which we were raised. When I was growing up, my mother used to buy an overabundance of paper towels, napkins, and toilet paper and put it downstairs on the shelves. 
I don't know why she bought so much, but nobody ever wanted for toilet paper in my house because there was always some downstairs. And while I do not blame my mother, I think about that environment when I think about buying seven hammers, 14 pliers, an untold number of tape measures, all because I never want to run out and I've got to have something right there. Or I don't know that I've actually got to have it, so then I go out and buy another one. If you don't believe that, you can ask my wife. There's a number of other environments in other environmental situations too. How many of you were raised in a family where they said, you need to clean your plate? There are starving children in Africa. Okay? Some of us clean our plate better than others. That's not always good. And I have tried to mail broccoli to Africa, and it usually comes back to me. They don't want broccoli in Africa. So you've got to remember, part of that is your environment. Part of that is how you were raised. Part of that is part of your DNA. Sometimes it's a factor of mental illness. Sometimes it's, a, it's something that we find missing in ourselves, and we use it to alleviate a disorder. It's an escape almost, this temptation, this addiction. You know, life gets stressful. We have problems at work. We have problems in our marriage. Things start to fall apart. And instead of dealing with those issues up front, we choose to escape going into our temptation and our addiction to do something about it, to relieve ourselves of it. Actually, it's the symptom of a much larger problem. It's the symptom of another monster in our lives. Oftentimes, you will find sexual addictions a result of some abuse or misuse earlier in that person's life that manifests itself later on in another monster of addiction all to itself. And finally, there's personal responsibility because all of us have free will. I've talked about that before. You have a choice. Use it. You know exactly what pushes your button. You know exactly what turns you over. You know exactly what pushes you off the end. You have a choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to have another piece of chocolate cake. No, I'm not going to buy that pair of aqua maroon shoes. No, I'm... it goes on and on. You have that choice, folks. Yeah, I know. Everybody's thinking about aqua maroon shoes now. I know. You have a personal responsibility. I'd like to tell you that addiction is a spiritual problem. Addiction is a spiritual problem. You know that? You understand that? Because God has placed within every human being the desire to be in relationship with him. That's why we were created. And addiction occurs when we try to fulfill the desire we have for God with other things. Addiction is simply misplaced desire. When you stop desiring God and you start desiring something else. Augustine put it this way. St. Augustine professed, expressed this truth. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. O oh Lord, our hearts are restless till they rest in thee, O oh Lord. And Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham was often fond of saying, there is a God-shaped void within us that only God can fill. I love that. Even Paul speaks at the beginning of his book to Romans. He's talking about this same thing when he says, we try to satisfy our souls with other things other than God. And we are like a thirsty person drinking salt water. We can never get enough. Hopefully none of you have ever thirsty enough to drink salt water because when you drink it, you can never get enough. 
We fill that God-shaped void with all sorts of things. We cram it full with our addictions, and it never, never fits. You want an old-fashioned biblical word for all this addiction? I'll give you one. Idolatry. What's your idol? What are your idols? What are the things that you put in that God-shaped void? And don't shake your head and tell me you don't have any, because we all got them. We all have got them. We worship the experience instead of experiencing the one who created it all. The truth, quite frankly, is we can never escape our addictions without God. We can never do it by ourselves. We can have others help us. We can have others point us in the right direction. But without God, we can never fully escape them. So I want to look at a couple things, just very quickly, to help overcome this monster of addiction. First of all, we need to discipline ourselves. We all need discipline, don't we? What did I say? Discipline weighs ounces and regret weighs tons. We need more discipline in our lives. We have to stop letting our passion rule us. Legendary management guru Tom Peters recommends that all of us need a to-don't list. A to-don't list. All of you probably have to-do lists, don't you? Things that you have to do. A lot of you have honey-do lists, but I'm talking about to-do lists. But Peters is saying you need a to-don't list. Those things that are bad for you, those behaviors that ought to be diverted, those things that take your focus away from God. We have the decision to really do something with our lives, and we need better to-don't list. How many of you have to-don't list? To-don't list? Everybody? Nobody? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You've got them. You just haven't written them out. They're in your heads. Here's some to-don'ts for you. How about, I'm never going to cheat on my income taxes. I'm never going to cheat on my spouse. I'm never going to embezzle from the company funds. I'm never going to lie to a policeman. you got to-don't list. You need to use those to-don't list. You need to expand on those to-don't list. Maybe you need to even write a few more on those to-don't list. Because Tom Peters will tell you oftentimes it's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of what you don't do. Sometimes that's more important. If we could eliminate all the to-don'ts in our life, we'd all be superstars at work, at school, in our family. To don't list. Some of you call it willpower. Tom Peters will tell you it's won't power. I won't do this. I won't do that. Secondly, something you really need to do is all of us need to do it. We need to have good habits. I know all of you have great habits, don't you? Positive habits every day. We need to develop good habits. And that's a tough thing to do. But we need to develop good habits because we can fall back on those during difficult or stressful times. Doing the right thing should come naturally to us. And studies have shown that good habits are our default behavior. If we have good habits, we'll go back to them again and again and again. And they range from everything. They range from having a good, healthy breakfast. How many of you ate breakfast today? How many? Okay, for all of you who didn't. We need to talk about your habits. Good, healthy breakfast. How about enough sleep? Did you get enough sleep last night? Yeah, good. I didn't. Okay. <clears throat> enough sleep? How about exercise? That's the one I get pushed on all the time. Got to go exercise. Got to go exercise. Got to do things. How about loving your neighbor? You know, that's a good, healthy habit, too. Love your neighbor. Be concerned about your next-door neighbor. 
Ask them how they're doing and really care about that. Hey, good. We need good habits. We need to develop good habits. Because we only have reservoirs so much of our self-control. Sometimes when our lives get out of whack, sometimes when they get so stressful, we don't do good things. We revert back to the old things. We start jumping up and down. We start eating three pieces of chocolate cake, buying five pairs of shoes, and yelling at everybody else. We go back to our addiction. And we laugh, but you know it's true. You know it's true. All you who are married, and it goes works either way on this, When your spouse buys something, do you feel the uncontrollable urge to go out and buy something of your own? Like when he buys a new set of golf clubs, do you say, you know, I really could use a new dress? We all do that? Sometimes? Maybe? No? We all have those urges. We need to develop good habits. Create healthy habits, and you create a healthy life. Pure and simple as that. And the last thing is the one that Paul gives us. It's the most important answer to our addiction problem, whatever your addiction might be, because he writes these words, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have help in this battle, folks. We are not alone, just as Paul was not alone in fighting this battle with whatever addictive tendencies he had. You have someone to come alongside you, someone to help you in the struggle. You have a companion for the battle. And that's where I think prayer is so important. You've heard me talk about it before, and I'm going to keep hammering at it again and again and again. Prayer is such an important thing in our lives. It's not just a matter of spending a few moments with God on a Sunday morning or reeling out your request list for God and saying, God, I need the following things. It's an intimate, quiet time with God. 50% you can talk, and 50% you need to be quiet. Prayer is the most important relationship that we can have. It's a relationship with God, and it's a relationship with ourselves. Let me leave you with a story today, a story about another pastor, a pastor named by Carter Jones. Carter had a small room in his attic, and when the church was getting to be difficult or he was running up against a difficult time, he would go up the stairway case and go up into the attic and spend some time in prayer with God. And the rest of the family knew you didn't bother Carter when he was up there. Don't go anywhere near it. One day he was having an especially difficult time, so Carter decided he would go up that staircase, spend some quiet time with God. And no sooner had he knelt beside the chair there and began to pray than the door came flinging open and his youngest daughter came in. And as soon as their eyes met, his daughter knew that, oops, I've done something wrong. I shouldn't have done this. But like any young person, she didn't miss a beat. She went over and said, Daddy, you've been busy so lately, I haven't seen you much. I just wanted to tell you, I really love you. And then she hugged him and kissed him on the cheek, and she was gone just as quickly as she came. Carter later wrote that after his daughter left, He continued in his prayer to God with these words. He said, Father, I've been so busy lately that I haven't had much time for you. I just wanted to tell you again, I love you. I love you. It's amazing how much strength we gain for our battle of addiction 
when we bask in the glow of light that is our Father God, the help that we so desperately need. Life doesn't have to be a constant battle, folks. It doesn't have to be a constant battle. It doesn't have to be us against evil, losing or succumbing to our temptations, our addictions. We need to develop a to-don't list. That would be good. We need to encourage the growth of healthy habits in our lives, but more than anything else than we could possibly do, we need to spend some quality time in God's presence, listening, not talking. Maybe the best habit that any of us could ever develop is to follow the psalmist words, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Maybe that's the addiction we really need. Maybe that's the addiction that rises above all others. Being addicted to God. I want to close today with a prayer. The first four verses of this prayer you have heard many times before. It is a prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. It was used in a sermon back in 1934 at Heath Evangelical Union Church in Heath, Massachusetts. And as you bow your heads today, as I say, you will recognize the beginning of this prayer. But I'm going to do the full prayer for you. And I'd like for you to listen to the words as we give over these monsters of temptation and addiction to Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow your heads with me, please? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen.